0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am John Francisco Matamorosanin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Eleanor Nott about her new book, Identity and Citizenship in Crimea and Moldova. Dr. Nott, welcome to the show. I, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, hi, everybody. Um, so I am a political scientist, at least by PhD training. Um, and I work as an assistant professor in the Department of Methodology in qualitative methods at um, LSE, London School of Economics. Um, I, yeah, as I said, I'm a political scientist by training, but I often think of myself as more kind of in the boundaries of political science, just because A, I take a qualitative approach and B, I take a kind of bottom up um approach. So I'm I'm really engaged in kind of interpretive methods um and not looking so much at what states do but how people interact with states. Um and and in a way like there are kind of synergies then with with the way that I approach political science and sociology and anthropology, um even though I'm not a kind of full scale ethnographer per se.
0: Uh, that's really interesting I think uh, all of that of what you're saying manifests in the book so I would like to go in depth about on it on the on the introduction of the first chapter could you tell us about that please
1: um so the first chapter of the book um kind of sets out um the premise and kind of you know why am I interested in studying these questions of identity and citizenship in Moldova and Crimea um and it comes from the perspective that really in the last 20, 25 years, um, at least in the kind of post-Soviet region and post-communist region, what we've observed is um, more and more people becoming um, citizens of states that they don't reside in, but where those states are claiming them as co-ethnic. And in particular, what has been underexplored is um, citizens in states or polities or subnational entities uh who are a majority and are still becoming um citizens of external states that that uh claim them as co-ethnic and so the book is in the introduction also um framing Kind of this concept of key majorities and moving away from just studying um, how states claim external coethnic ethnic communities as minorities and also say we need to look at instances um, when they claim co-ethnic communities that are also majorities, key majorities. Um, because I think key majorities are interesting because the the scale of citizenship acquisition can be a lot larger and a lot more meaningful. And at the same time, they don't necessarily face the, the same threats of discrimination which is not to say that they aren't discriminated, but I think they, they, in general, um, face a kind of a lower threat of discrimination, and yet they're still kind of acquiring citizenship en masse. So in the last 20 years, around a million uh, Moldovan citizens have acquired Romanian citizenship. And Crimea has also assumed... Um, to be a case where a lot of people prior to Russia's annexation in 2014 had already been what is described as kind of passportized uh, where uh, it's kind of assumed that Russia had given out a lot of Russian passports to people and so the book is a kind of comparison of these two cases and also a problematization of like was Crimea really passportized because I think the lens of passportization. Um, kind of denies any agency to individuals. It just assumes that states are giving things out without understanding the process of acquisition, the meaning of acquisition, and if people want it or need it in the first place. So actually the book ends up arguing that yeah um, Moldova is a case of kind of en masse acquisition of Romanian citizenship, but Crimea prior to Russia's annexation in 2014 really isn't a case of en masse um, acquisition of Russian citizenship, and then kind of looks at how and why um, that might be the case.
0: That's really interesting I think it's um, an outline of of the book in general and it's a different approach conceptually and methodologically to discussions around identity and citizenship now could you tell me about your second chapter kin state politics through the identity citizenship nexus hmm
1: and um, before that I should probably also sorry um talk a little bit about the methodology um, which is contained in the first chapter which um, and you said it is a bit different and i think it's a bit different for many reasons partly because it's taken in an interpretive approach in political science which again has those kind of synergies with more sociological and anthropological approaches but it is also doing so in a comparative way um and at least in political science i mean this is a kind of growing approach but but looking from the bottom up across cases um is is definitely kind of a different way of doing things not studying kind of comparison through studying outcomes, but comparison through studying meanings and practices, which is basically what the book is trying to do, Um, which leads me on to studying, uh, to to talking about the identity citizenship nexus. So what I'm interested in, in terms of identity, is that bottom-up perspective. How do people negotiate, navigate, understand what identity means for them? in relation to you know, what does it mean to be Romanian in Moldova? What does it mean to be Moldovan in Moldova? How do people engage with Romania as a, as a consequence and in relationship to that identity? What does it mean to be uh, Russian in Crimea? What does it mean to be Ukrainian in Crimea? What does it mean to be Crimean? And how do people understand and navigate and negotiate their understanding of what Russia is as a, as a kin state? Um, so I'm interested in kind of meanings of identification. And then also practices of citizenship. So rather than seeing, again, citizenship through a kind of state lens um, about what states are uh, giving out or or what policies exist at the state level, I'm interested in that bottom up perspective of looking at how people use citizenship, how they access it, how they acquire it, what they do as a result. What are their kind of motivations for acquiring and engaging with citizenship? Um, And I kind of try to bring these two things together through this identity citizenship nexus. because the kind of the key theoretical argument of the book is that we shouldn't assume that there is a relationship from identity to citizenship or from citizenship to identity, but more that there's a kind of bi-directional, messy, complex, plural way in which identity and citizenship um, can intersect. That's why I describe it as a nexus. So for some people, it might be that um, understandings of identity and practices of citizenship, are nested within each other so they're not um, mutually exclusive they're kind of overlapping and to be uh, a part of one thing is imagined to be a part of a bigger thing. For some people they might be kind of partially overlapping but um, not wholly overlapping so they're not kind of imagined as nested but they kind of have a meaning an understanding of meanings of identification that, that has some degree of overlap. For other people, they might be entirely separate that to identify with one thing is conceived as entirely separate to identifying with another thing, say Ukraine or Russia. Um, And then for for other people, they might be kind of mutually exclusive that there's almost this idea of competition between um, identifying um, as one thing and identifying as another thing. And so I try to look at that kind of messy plurality of how and when and why citizenship uh, and identity might intersect in different ways.
0: Yes, it's very interesting because it talks about the how identity is fractured, contingent, and it's also blended, multidimensional. Uh, and I would like you to um, go in depth on the chapter three, Crimea and Moldova as kin majorities. I believe it's really related to what you're saying. Just go in more in depth on it. Could you tell us about that chapter, please?
1: Uh, yeah, certainly. So the third chapter... Um, it's a kind of historical exploration of how and why these two kin majorities or cases of kin majorities, Crimea and Moldova, came to be kin majorities. Um, And so in the kind of the first part of chapter three, um, I explore kind of Crimea's history in relation to Russia and Ukraine um kind of exploring the the territorial political contestations over time exploring how and why um Crimea came you know Crimea's kind of position in the Soviet Union and then the contestations over um Crimea's position in uh, post-Soviet Ukraine after 1991. I look at um secessionist and irredentist movements um, around 1994 and how and why they failed um, to to enable to lead uh, Crimea from leaving Ukraine and joining Russia um, and how that was a kind of apex moment of secessionist and irredentist um, sentiment and kind of fell away after 1994 and kind of juxtaposed that with the almost surprising then um, annexation of Crimea by Russia in 2014. And then I look um, at the kind of policy level in terms of what was available or kind of how Russia was engaging with um, ethnic Russians abroad, kind of outside uh, Russia's territory. Um, and look at the compatriot policy because that's kind of how Russia conceives of uh its king communities abroad through the, the kind of lens of compatriots and claims to who a compatriot is and how the compatriot policy then plays out um in the Russian policy sphere and also on the ground um within Crimea. And then I move on to look at kind of the similar contestations um territorially, politically, um, historically within. Moldova and kind of how the contemporary Moldovan state came into being through first being a part of the Russian empire, um, then being a part of greater Romania in the interwar period, then being in the Soviet Union, and then being an independent uh, nation state since 1991. And again, look at very similar to Crimea, the kind of existential questions that were around um, what Moldova was as a nation and a state in the early 90s, and how, again, in 1994, Uh, There was a kind of moment of potential uh, unification or reunification with Romania and how that kind of dissipated and how people became, in a sense, less interested with ethnic politics from the bottom up, even though there was a kind of strong continued um, politicization of ethnicity and national questions within Moldova um, up to this kind of present day. And then I look very similarly to Russia at what policies existed or exist uh, from Romania to Moldovan citizens and kind of how Romania in a sense functions not just as a kin state to citizens of Moldova, but also to the whole state of Moldova and how that makes Moldova quite different in its relationship to to Romania and how it makes Moldovan citizens quite different in relation to Romania. Because whereas Russia has kind of many um, communities of compatriots abroad, uh, Romania does too, but it kind of prioritizes its largest um, community in in Moldova in terms of scholarship places and, and other policies. And in particular, with regard to Romania's policy of citizenship acquisition or how Romania terms it kind of Romania's policy of citizenship reacquisition um, on the basis of people who lost Romanian citizenship uh, in the interwar period and then the rights to, to reacquire Romanian citizenship from grandparents Parents, great grandparents who who lost uh, Romanian citizenship um, in the kind of early Second World War. Um, and so then kind of set this up as a comparison of, you know, there are many different ways in which um, kind of Crimea and Moldova share these similarities of contestation, um, kind of including in the post-Soviet period, this kind of existential questions in, in relation to identity politics. They share these kind of kin-state um, policies that are available um but there's this kind of paradox that comes out which is why while kind of Crimea seems very important to Russia kind of the pearl of Russia's national imaginary Romania uh, Crimea didn't really seem a priority in terms of policy that Russia was putting out prior to Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 whereas Romania has a different relationship to Moldova it doesn't kind of see it see Moldova as a kind of pearl of the Romanian national imaginary it sees it more as a kind of periphery to be Romanianized. But when it comes to policy, Romania is really prioritizing um, policies to to Moldova and to Moldovan citizens. And so we might expect Russia to be doing different things in Crimea than it actually was doing. Um, And so there's kind of this paradoxical um, aspect to the comparison as well, which is then really interesting when we look um, from the bottom up, as I do in the later chapters.
0: Oh, definitely. I agree. And I think there's a lot of value in you p- p- putting this history on on these cases and enlightening other readers because even though it's kind of pertinent right now, it's in the news in a general way, we, there's not much we know about it, especially when, when you talk about Romania and, and what you're discussing. Now, I want to go in depth in chapter four, which is called to be discriminated against or not in Crimea. Could you could you tell us a bit about
1: that, please? Yeah, so I'll just kind of set the framework um, before discussing that chapter in depth. So I essentially have like four um, kind of in-depth empirical chapters and the first two look at um, Crimea in terms of identity and citizenship and then the second two uh, look at uh, Moldova in terms of identity and citizenship. So the chapter about to be discriminated against or not in Crimea is really um, a bottom-up examination of... Meanings of identification in Crimea um, based on fieldwork that I conducted in 2012 and 2013. And I, after kind of doing those fieldwork interviews and analyzing the data and realizing how much messiness and complexity there was when you kind of do that bottom up examination. Um, move away from kind of dichotomous understandings that people are necessarily Ukrainian or necessarily Russian, ethnically Ukrainian or ethnically Russian and look more at how do people articulate and navigate what identity means for them? How do they talk about it? What is the meaning that they give to it? And come up with these kind of five um, inductive categories that help me to look at um, those meanings and kind of those agglomerations of meanings and to examine who felt discriminated against and who did not feel discriminated against and how did articulations of what it meant to be russian intersect or not with that idea of discrimination because in you know during russia's annexation of crimea the the discourse Coming out from the Russian state and from those supporting annexation on the ground in Crimea was very much that Russians have been discriminated against in Crimea. They've been threatened by Ukrainianization policies, and so it was really interesting then to kind of juxtapose that discourse with the the data that I had uh, from Crimea, kind of a, a window to on of calm before this moment in 2014, and. Um, So constructing those four inductive categories, I basically claim um, that it was only a minority of individuals who saw to be Russian as to be discriminated against by the state. And actually in the book, I describe them as politicized Russians because I think it's really important that they don't just identify as ethnically Russian, and on, it's not just that they're the most pro-Russian uh, participants that I engaged with, and it's not just that they identify as being discriminated against by Ukraine, it's also that they were politically active in pro-Russian movements, in pro-Russian parties. And so, in a sense, this idea of being discriminated against is a political project of Um, kind of those on the fringe actually of Crimean politics uh, before 2014 and so rather annexation is kind of a moment where that fringe transforms into being this idea about what Crimea is and instead the four other categories that I construct really are kind of juxtaposed to the idea um, of discrimination so the second category is about Uh, how it's possible to be ethnically Russian without having this idea of discrimination. And I have some quotes in the book about people kind of ridiculing this idea that they're discriminated against, like just because you have to watch cinema in Ukrainian language doesn't mean you're discriminated against, doesn't mean your rights are threatened. And then I look at kind of more um, hybrids and plural categories. So I look at um, a kind of small uh, group of people that identified as Crimean this kind of hybrid category articulated as a kind of way to be between Ukraine and Russia. And many people identified in that way because they had um, family that were ethnically Russian and ethnically Ukrainian. And this kind of regional identity of Crimea kind of allowed them to navigate that hybridity and that plurality. And then I look at this category that Um, It took me a really long time to realize they existed, almost as if they shouldn't exist, because when we write about Crimea, we often think that everyone is identifying in an ethnic way. And instead, I look at this group of uh, political Ukrainians, uh, mostly young people who had grown up and kind of been educated and socialized during the post-Soviet period. And didn't want to talk about ethnicity, didn't see it as a way that they wanted to identify and define themselves. Rather, they wanted to talk about the importance of Ukrainian citizenship, of wanting to learn Ukrainian, of being kind of socialized within that Ukrainian state and see Ukraine as a kind of very legitimate um, kind of state in which they, they resided. And then finally, I look at ethnic Ukrainians who hadn't really grown up in Crimea, but uh, were living there through kind of various different reasons. Um, And then kind of look at then how there are different ways in in which people are identifying as Ukrainian in Crimea. Um, Some through that kind of political Ukrainian lens and some through that kind of ethnic Ukrainian lens, um, where it's almost... They kind of didn't imagine it was possible to be ethically Ukrainian and residing in Crimea, but it was definitely possible to be kind of politically Ukrainian um, and growing up in in Crimea. I would say that, sorry, just one caveat to the book is that I'm looking at those who Russia would consider to be compatriots. So I don't look at Crimean Tatars, even though they are a super important um, uh, community within Crimea, the kind of indigenous population to Crimea their rights have been really threatened um, since annexation. There's like huge human rights abuses um, of Crimean Tatars, kidnaps, persecutions, murders. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in that kind of spectrum between identifying as Russian and identifying as Ukrainian within that kind of uh, who Russia would consider to be a compatriot um, of the state.
0: That's really interesting. And um, I think that in that chapter there are elements for that are really useful for people trying to approach uh, identity differently. Uh, the way you discuss uh, generational changes and how senses not don't always um, represent reality. Like there are a lot of things that escape those type of ciphers or figures and numbers when you're trying to understand identities. Now I want to go to chapter number five neither Russian citizens nor compatriots. Could you tell us about that, please?
1: Um, yeah, so the the sixth chapter is taking those meanings of identification and looking at how and if and why they might um, intersect with different practices of citizenship. So essentially what I'm doing is looking at who wanted Russian citizenship, who was interested in engaging with it. And how did that intersect with identity? And similarly, who identified as compatriots and who was interested in engaging with the compatriot policy? And um, to to tell a kind of long story short, because I think the the short story is basically the key message. um, In the beginning, I talked about how Crimea is often conceived as a a case of Russian passportization, that there are many uh, Russian citizens residing in in Crimea and wanting Russian citizenship. The the book is basically saying, I don't think that's the case. I never met anybody who uh, had Russian citizenship, but I did meet people who were interested in acquiring it, a very small number, and they were uh, politicized Russians. So only politicized Russians were interested in engaging um, in Russian citizenship, and they were lobbying uh, the Russian state through the pro-Russian organizations that they were part of for Russian citizenship, and basically were having their calls um, unanswered kind of through that lobbying. And they wanted it because of that lens of discrimination. They saw themselves as discriminated and marginalised and saw Russian citizenship as a way to gain leverage within Crimea and within Ukraine. But they were the only people, basically, who saw Russian citizenship as desirable Every other category, the uh, ethnic Russians, the political Ukrainians, the Crimeans and the ethnic Ukrainians, basically were like, we have zero interest in Russian citizenship. It doesn't give us what we need. It doesn't give us what we want. We ha- we don't want to move to to Russia. Um, We're super happy residing in Crimea within the Ukrainian state. We support territorial status quo. So in a sense, what I say is like identity does intersect somewhat with um practices of citizenship in Crimea, but only... To the extent that it's only discriminated, those who identify as discriminated, it's only politicized Russians that have any uh, desire for Russian citizenship. Everyone uh, For everyone else, identity is really not um, playing a factor, apart from the fact that they don't imagine themselves as discriminated. They're not in those pro-Russian organizations, and they would have zero interest in engaging with the Russian state. And the same goes for the compatriot policy, um, that it was only politicized Russians who were interested in the compatriot policy and interested in identifying as compatriots. They were not happy with what the compatriot policy um, offered in terms of residency rights or kind of facilitated migration to Russia because they saw that as kind of undermining their goals in Crimea, which was to have a strong pro-Russian community in Crimea. And also they didn't want to move to somewhere colder and poorer than Crimea. They, they liked that, you know, Crimea is sunny and a nice place to live. Um, and I look at okay. So what does what is the compatriot policy then? If it's only of interest to those who identify as discriminated, identify as like the most pro-Russian and are part of these uh, pro-Russian organisations, and what is interesting to reflect on is how other participants that weren't interested in the compatriot policy saw it as really as a as a scheme of corruption that what Russia was offering through the compatriot policy was essentially leverage for politicized Russians. And they saw them not as really politicized Russians so much as professional Russians, that that to be a part of those pro-Russian organizations, to see yourself as discriminated, was essentially a professional goal to, to get funds from Russia. And so they had zero interest in those kind of corruption schemes. They had zero interest in pro-Russian organizations because they saw them as political losers and and corrupt individuals and organizations. And so you kind of have this big cleavage between the small group of politicized Russians and everyone else who has zero interest in Russian citizenship and zero interest in the compatriot policy. And I think that story of Crimea is really one that is not told because what we see are those pro-Russian organizations. We see those pro-Russian organization uh, individuals and we assume that Crimea is pro-Russian and a space of pro-Russian nationalism on that basis. And what we don't see are the, in a sense, majority of people that I interviewed who had very little interest in Russia, were super critical of Russia, especially the Putin regime, especially the kind of corruption authoritarianism of the Putin regime, and supported Ukrainian um, kind of political and territorial the, the status quo before annexation. They wanted to be a part and saw Ukraine as the legitimate uh, government of Crimea. They wanted more integration with, uh, with Ukraine, not kind of the the goals of the pro-Russian movements. But even those pro-Russian movements, even the politicized Russians saw annexation, saw any kind of territorial change as um, super unlikely, and to be honest, undesirable, because the, they couldn't imagine, couldn't foresee how it was possible or, or why Russia would pursue it. And so, it's, again, it's kind of interesting and, and kind of presents a paradox that like that moment just before annexation, it seemed completely unimaginable. Um, and they really actually wanted to avoid uh, conflict. They didn't want to pursue change that would lead to conflict and violence. Um, and yet, kind of eight months later, we, we um, see Russia's annexation of Crimea and the support of politicized or professional Russians um, for, for that annexation.
0: Oh, great, Eleanor. Now, on chapter six and seven, there's this concept that you discuss around called nested identities. Could we start with chapter six called to be nested or not in Moldova?
1: Mm-hmm. So similarly to the kind of bottom-up exploration of meanings of identification in Crimea, chapter six is doing the same and looking at bottom-up meanings of identification in uh, Moldova. And um, you kind of already commented on the intergenerational kind of contestations of meanings. And that was something for me that was kind of fascinating. The, these, Crimea and Moldova are similar in the sense of contestation, but they're also very different. One is a, a state, Moldova, and one is a sub-state, Crimea. And it was that kind of juxtaposition and seeing how they converged that was super interesting. And, and as I said, they kind of um, intersected in this intergenerational contestation of meaning that people would have a very different understanding of their identity uh, themselves. They, Their siblings might have a different um, understanding of identity if they were slightly older or younger and they really saw their parents and grandparents as having different kind of meanings of identity. And I kind of explored the, the different ways in, in which that plays out. Um, But primarily I look at, uh, again, those meanings of identity from the bottom up and how those meanings are like messy, but they kind of um, agglomerate in these kind of groupings. And so I have five um, inductive categories of identification as well in Moldova. And the first is precisely that kind of nested um, category of organic Romanians who see to be Moldovan as to be Romanian, that there is basically no difference because they imagine a kind of biological and primordial connection to uh, ethnic Romanians in Romania that that ethnic Romanians exist both in in Moldova and in Romania. And there is basically no difference between them because of, um, you know, historical figures being related because they imagine themselves as having the same blood as ethnic Romanians. And I kind of look at then how this idea of organic to be organic romanian as kind of a nested articulation of identity uh with regards to romania um but it's not the only way um of identifying in moldova and so i also look at this uh category of cultural um, romanians and um, so cultural romanians um have uh, they kind of contest the idea of organic romanians that there's kind of no difference they don't imagine they don't articulate um no difference to ethnic romanians uh, in romania they do see like there's some kind of cross-cutting overlap they do see their language as romanian um, but they don't you know to be ethnically romanian in moldova they argue it's basically a different experience of being ethnically romanian in Romania because there's just a whole different political experience Romania was never in the Soviet Union and it had ne- never had kind of Soviet um, identity and nationality policies and um, to be ethnically Romanian in, in Moldova and to be ethnically Romanian in Romania is still very different experiences that that Romania is much close is, is a member of the EU and therefore much closer to the EU and there's just kind of a different political system in Moldova that makes that kind of fuses with that identity and and makes people experience the world and understand themselves in very different ways. Um, And then there's kind of ambivalent Romanians who kind of similarly have this idea of cross-cutting identification with ethnic Romanians in Romania and with Romania, but are much more uncertain about it and kind of don't want to have to decide how they identify and they have this kind of ambiguity that there's this kind of plurality that like in some ways they identify as being Romanian in some ways they identify as being Moldovan but also don't really want to be forced to have to make a choice and that ambivalence also plays out in relation to both the Romanian state and the Moldovan state in the sense that like again they don't want to choose but also they kind of are super critical of both of those political systems and um, kind of try to navigate then those those contestations. And then there's a category of Moldovans who kind of similarly to political Ukrainians, it's not that they identify as being ethnically Moldovan, that's not what's going on. It's a much more civic political um, understanding that often from more multicultural uh, families. And they have a kind of separate um, understanding of themselves from ethnic Romanians in Romania, but really want to kind of underscore what's important is not is not ethnicity or language but rather being from Moldova being a citizen of Moldova and kind of political ways of identifying with Moldova and then lastly there's this um, kind of fascinating and again politicized category of linguistic Moldovans who are the only category that see the language that they speak as as Moldovan um, they are also from kind of multicultural uh, families and kind of hold on to this or uh, kind of Soviet construction that to be uh, Moldovan is in kind of competition with the Romanian state that well or vice versa that the Romanian state is kind of in competition with them as a Moldovan nation and seeking to kind of colonize it um, and intimidate what it means to be Moldovan and they kind of want to be left alone to kind of to exist in that space but it's 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 a very politicized identity in the sense that it is uh, a kind of Soviet legacy and it's the ways in which uh, parties on the left in Moldovan politics have kind of reinvigorated the idea that, that there is no connection between uh, Moldova and Romania, even though many people kind of identify in that way. And the book in a similar way, uh, sorry, the chapter in a similar way to, to how I do in Crimea is trying to look beyond census categories that the Moldovan census allows people either to be ethnically Romanian or ethnically Moldovan or ethnically Russian or ethnically Ukrainian But actually, those categories of ethnic Romanian and ethnic Moldovan don't get at the complexity of how people identify. And actually, in a sense, what do those categories mean in the first place? If you have people, say, like ambivalent Romanians that don't want to have to make a choice. And so I look more at those meanings and contestations and navigations to say it's way more complex than these two categories. And actually, the ways in which we try to count those categories is kind of is too simplistic to get at what it means to be remaining in the first place and what it means to be Moldovan um, in the first place as well.
0: That's really interesting in the fact that you look at the diversity within and the fact that identities are not monolithic. Now, uh, could you tell us about chapter seven from nested identities to nested citizens?
1: Mm-hmm. So whereas I say in, um, in the previous chapter that, there isn't really a nested understanding that there is a nested understanding of identity but it's only for organic romanians when it comes to practices of citizenship um again where i kind of intersect the meanings of identification with um how people are engaging with romania through citizenship that's where you start to see that i that the identity isn't kind of the only thing that's going on that people do have a kind of nested understanding of citizenship that extends beyond only organic romanians extends beyond only those who have a nested understanding of identity and actually here moldovans are super interesting because they're very much interested to engage with romanian citizenship even though they don't really see romania as a kin state even though they don't see themselves um as uh, in any way ethnically Romanian. And so I kind of look at how and why the kin state of Romania is able to engage with those who really don't want to identify as ethnically Romanian. Um, But the chapter is also trying to kind of question a typical argument um, that is put forward that people in Moldova only want Romanian citizenship for what is described as kind of strategic or material reasons, which is to say that and I I don't discount or underplay this, that Romanian citizenship is EU citizenship. It is access to a different labour market, to greater rights in the international system and the EU in particular. Um, And Moldova was peripheralised by Romania acceding to the EU. And there has been a gold rush of Romanian citizenship since. But... I tried to question that it 's not only about the material value of Romanian citizenship it 's kind of explaining what 's going on, and conversely it 's also not just about um, identity right. I already kind of said that that many more people um, in Moldova were engaging with Romanian citizenship that identified it uh, as ethnically Romanian and that kind of saw Romanian citizenship in that symbolic sense and and again kind of moving away from that spectrum of it can only be symbolic or only material look at how those uh, logics might be combined and also this kind of third logic that i talk about of legitimacy because i think to explain the popularity of romanian citizenship we also need to understand how how normal it is how constructed as natural it is to be a romanian citizen in moldova how this isn't just a kind of everyday thing that ordinary people are doing it's also a very endorsed political practice so a lot of political um elites have Romanian citizenship judges you know kind of everyone in in Moldovan society is engaging with Romanian citizenship and it's not something that is contested really apart from those on the left in in Moldova Um, and instead it is about how it's constructed as normal how it's constructed as legitimate and how it's constructed as natural because just like Romania's Romania frames the policy as reacquisition people also understand it for its kind of reparative um correction of historical injustices that they can directly tie to their family members so they are getting it back as a consequence of their parents grandparents great-grandparents losing Romanian citizenship because of Soviet annexation of Moldova from Romania and so they kind of see those rights as you know they have a right to those rights that those rights are theirs and they have every right to be acquiring those rights and to be applying for them and engaging with them, that that is legitimate. And so I tried to then say that many more people see Romanian citizenship as legitimate than necessarily see it as for its material reasons or see it for its symbolic reasons. And I think we need to take seriously not just that um, the the different logics of symbolic and material might be intersecting, but also the, the legitimacy of Romanian citizenship is another kind of intersecting logic, and I think in many ways a more powerful logic for why Romanian citizenship is so important and attractive uh, in Moldova during this period.
0: That's really interesting, Eli. Now, before we go into the final chapter called Identity, Citizenship and Kin Majorities, I want, I want you to tell us a bit about the table of contents and figures in the book, because What you're discussing there's a level of complexity to it yet you managed to explain it clearly and i think um you you make good use of those uh, tables and figures in general could you tell us uh what you did with it what the how you use them to explain all these complexities
1: Mm -hmm. i mean i think probably my favorite um figures in the book are the maps um which uh, at the very very beginning um and you know i did my undergrad um in geography i've been a lover of maps for a really long time because i think that they are able to convey something that you know that they're able to distill complexity in a way that is like visually beautiful and um super powerful for showing how dynamic borders have been over kind of short but long time spans right we're talking about you know if if it's still possible to to be alive in Moldova or to be alive in Crimea and have it and have existed during those often violent and conflict driven border changes um, yourself. That kind of borders have moved over people as much as people have moved over borders. Um. So so yeah, I really really love the maps, but um, in the tables, you know, especially in the empirical chapters, I kind of try to condense what is that kind of messy and complex story into something that that is kind of, as I say, distilled, right, that it, 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 it's synthesising information in a way that is trying to convey a messy story and a com- complex story in a kind of single articulation of it to, to synthesise those similarities and differences and to look theoretically and analytically at what this means, like what do these meanings of identification mean? theoretically what do these practices of citizenship mean and how are they kind of then intersecting
0: that's so interesting um now let's go in depth in chapter eight identity citizenship and kin majorities i I, I think you've wrapped things up in that chapter can you tell us about it please
1: yeah so i mean i was thinking in a way like is this the hardest chapter i wrote or the easiest chapter i wrote because in a way in a way like i set out for this bottom-up comparative. Uh, study and the empirical chapters allow me to kind of drill into um, you know meanings of identification in chromia practices of citizenship uh, in Crimea, and and vice versa in in Moldova and essentially chapter eight is trying to bring all of this empirical complexity messiness plurality together to say okay but what is you know what where is the comparison and I really believe that comparison is like trying to be more than the sum of its parts and so you kind of have to do that right through through a, a side-by-side analysis. Um, and so this chapter is really trying to do that kind of bottom-up comparison. So I look first at meanings of identification and the ways in which uh, Crimea and Moldova converge and diverge. And and kind of what I say is that there's actually a surprising amount of convergence um, in terms of how meanings of identification are um, understood, that they are, you know, I start with this category of key majorities and say, actually, when we look from the bottom up, it's not that the key majority doesn't exist, but it's way more complex and that actually majorities are assemblages of different kind of constituent understandings of, of uh, identity. Um, and again, kind of going away from that, people are either ethnically Ukrainian or ethnically Russian or ethnically Romanian or ethnically Moldovan. Um say that you know there's different assemblages of how people understand themselves historically, politically, territorially, culturally, um, etc. And so again one of the ways in which these two cases uh, kind of converge is around that intergenerational contestation of meaning and that's kind of another layer of complexity right that there isn't just variation uh, across within meanings there's also variation across time of, of how people understand themselves Um, in relation to their parents and grandparents and and children Um, and then try to kind of explore how and why Crimea kind of converge in that way but when we come to practices we see a very different story right whereas they kind of converge in terms of complexity of meanings how those meanings then play out in terms of whether people are interested in citizenship from a kin state is really different and What I try to do to bring together, you know, why is Romanian citizenship so popular in uh, Moldova and Russian citizenship surprisingly unpopular in Crimea is not just because of what the states are doing. It's not just because uh, Romania is making Romanian citizenship available in uh, Moldova and Russia really wasn't facilitating access uh, of Russian citizenship to Crimea. I don't think the story would necessarily be that different if uh, Russia was making... Russia had made Russian citizenship more available before annexation because we also need to look from the bottom up. We need to look at um, how legitimate those policies are. And as I said, Romanian citizenship was understood as being super legitimate um, in Moldova, that people wanted those rights uh, back from from their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents that had lost them. Whereas Russian citizenship was not conceived as legitimate in uh, Crimea. It, it didn't have that kind of reparative um, function. People didn't see those rights as being lost and uh, it was in direct kind of contradiction to to what was legal within Ukraine. But again I, I I don't necessarily think the legitimacy of Russian citizenship would have looked that different if if it was legal. I think that people didn't have that kind of family narrative as to uh, or sense of loss regarding Russian citizenship in Crimea that the Ukrainian state had quite successfully built. Uh, a political identity around kind of legitimacy of of governance over Crimea. Um, And I also look at desirability that uh, Romanian citizenship was super desirable in Moldova uh, because it gave people rights that they wanted and needed and and saw as legitimate, whereas uh, people in Crimea just did not see Russian citizenship as desirable. They didn't want essentially the rights uh, or need the rights that that Russian citizenship might have offered, apart from those politicized Russians um, that I talk about, who did want uh, Russian citizenship, who did think that they needed Russian citizenship and were unable to get it, but they were a very small community. They were politically active in those kind of fringe pro-Russian movements and wanted it as leverage um, against the state of Ukraine. Um, So, yeah, so the final chapter is really kind of doing that comparative work and then kind of looking out to say, okay, what are the broader implications um, of the book in terms of identity, citizenship and how we study post-Soviet politics and and in terms of identity, the importance of looking beyond um, dichotomous kind of categories and and doing that bottom-up work, looking at those meanings because essentially those categories can become redundant when we look from the bottom-up and we kind of have to question what census categories mean in the first place. The importance of studying practices of citizenship, that it's not just about what states make available and accessible. It's also about how people um, conceive of what those citizenship policies mean and and look like for them and whether they want them and whether they see them as legitimate. And then also shift to, it's a kind of self-reflection and self-criticality to say, maybe we need to not just look at identity and nationalism with regards to post-Soviet politics, because actually what this book is also about exposing is looking at the fusion of, say, identity and nationalist politics with corruption in Crimea, and how kind of these cleavages of identity are not really that meaningful when we look from the bottom up. They are a kind of veil for corruption. They allow elites to kind of continue to talk about questions of identity and nationalism and to get away without kind of solving some of the bigger questions around inequality and corruption. Um, and so that that kind of top down, bottom up juxtaposition of saying, we also need to kind of look beyond what the state is doing in terms of how we study these states and societies and people and, and look at more what they consider important um, as well, both in terms of how we study identity and citizenship, but also how we study other things that aren't just the kind of um, top-down cleavages in politics.
0: That's so interesting. I think um, uh, the, indiv- the individual as, uh, plays an important role in how you explain these identities. And I also believe that you're very critical of uh, myth-making or mythical origins and regards to identities, and among many other things that I find really valuable in your book in general. Uh, we've been discussing your book, Identity and Citizenship in Crimea and Moldova, and Dr. or not we've taken up a lot of your time, and I have just two final questions for you, please. Uh, first one is, what are you working on right now? And the second one is, how do you think this has changed um, in, in the present with all the turmoil in and Europe in general and Russia in particular. How has that changed? Yeah, thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. Let me actually answer the second question first, because okay, I cool. think because I think the changes, um, you know, in the, the last eight years have really affected um, what it is possible to work on, and so um, it's kind of shifted my my research um, agenda as a consequence. Um, so I would just reiterate that, like when I left Crimea in June, May June twenty thirteen, I had uh, I and probably more importantly, the the people that I was interviewing, um, you know, friends acquaintances had absolutely no sense that what was about to happen um, in uh, February twenty fourteen was about to happen. If it, you know, they, they saw it as, as undesirable, essentially. And so we also need to look at then kind of what changed in that eight to nine month period. Um, but I think after 2014, it became impossible for me to go back to Crimea. Um, and I have published uh, about that in a piece um, beyond the field because it is not safe uh, for me to be asking those kinds of questions about what it means to be ethnically Russian, how people engage with Russia, what Russia means um, as a kin state, whether people conceive of Russia as a kin state. But more importantly, it would be super unsafe for me to, inter- you know, that the participants that I might have in in that kind of hypothetical study would be put at, at grave risk. So very quickly, I realized that um, as, as, Russia's annexation of Crimea was happening, and as rights were being kind of um, suppressed on the ground in Crimea, that that would just not be an avenue that I would uh, do future research. And, um, you know, I had I, I had many kind of projects in mind about, I think it would have been really interesting to, to shift away from just studying ethnic Russians and ethnic Ukrainians in Crimea to also look at Crimean Tatars. But again... It is not safe for me as a foreign researcher to to do that kind of work, um, and I would say since uh, February two thousand twenty two, so this year, um, it the <laughs> the numbers of people that ha- are unable to do this kind of work is is growing. Right, that it is not safe in any way to travel to sites of active conflict for the researcher or for potential participants. I think a lot of uh, researchers i know that work on russia uh, are basically unable to to continue kind of empirical um on the ground work um including those kind of russian systems as well so i i think it, this war has kind of changed everything in terms of what it is possible um to study i think it is possible to do kind of desk based uh work but that is that is not kind of um that is not kind of why I got into wanting to be a researcher. Like, you know, I think field research is, is the most beneficial of all the ways um, to collect data when it's safe to do. So, um, death based research is a kind of poor, uh, sibling of, of that kind of approach. But, but in this consequence, like it's not harming anybody, um, to do that. And so one of the things that I've been working on is kind of drawing on the implications of the book to look at, um, different explanations for Russia's annexation of Crimea. A lot of people have suggested that it's around nationalism. It's around the support for uh, annexation within Crimea. And I try to say, okay, that's that's one explanation, but it, it needs to be tested against other explanations, uh, including the role of organized crime and corruption. Because if the, the people that I talk about in the book is politicized Russians, if the people that have taken over Crimea since 2014 are, yes, pro-Russian nationalists, but also highly involved in organized crime uh, and corruption. At what point are they pro-Russian nationalists and at what point are they organized criminals? And and is there a kind of organized crime story around annexation that we also need to consider? Um, More broadly, I've been doing work on um, citizenship um, in relation to uh, democratization in post-communist Europe. Um, And also in relation to Brexit. So one thing that I was kind of reflecting on the very early um, period in which the, you know, after the the referendum for the UK to leave the EU and and the slight majority of of voters that supported uh, leaving the EU was looking at the consequences and understandings and meanings and practices of EU citizenship and living in the UK for uh, the three million uh, population of EU citizens that reside in the UK and kind of how they understand what Brexit is and the implications of that on their kind of citizenship status and security in the UK. Um, And then also I'm super interested, um, not only because I work in the department of methodology, but just in general around kind of methodological questions. So I've been working a bit on uh, research ethics and then uh, more recently, I've been writing a paper on um, what I describe as kind of methodologies of uh, intuition, how, Our prior experiences and insights play a really important role in the decisions that we make around research and how we design research. But they're often not something, at least in political science, that we um, expose to readers. They're often something that we kind of hide away from because we think it's more rigorous to do so. And I try to make the argument that actually kind of drawing on cognitive debates and cognitive psychology and organizational behavior, that actually there is much greater rigor in exposing the contingencies, uncertainties and the role of intuition in the way that we do and design and conduct research than there isn't kind of hiding it um, in the shadows. So, yeah, I'm definitely working on a lot of uh, different things at, at this point. Um, but, yeah, it's nice to kind of to have the space after the book uh, to do those kind of different research interests um, as well.
0: That's really interesting, Dr. Eleanor. not uh, all those projects uh, sound interesting as a reader and I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, reading them. I I want to thank you for being on the show today. I I really enjoyed it. Um, Take care. And to the audience, thanks for listening to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.